Just a friendly reminder that if you wish to support the ministries of this podcast or the local church in which I serve, you may send any donations to 563 East Main Street in Philadelphia, Mississippi, 39350, care of Henry's Chapel, UMC. So this Sunday is Transfiguration Sunday. It's a high day in the church. We'll be looking at what that means when we dive into our text, which will be Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. But at the beginning of this scripture, it's kind of like those verses where you hear, therefore, or, and then, except for it begins with the phrase, six days later. And if you're like me, you, you want to know six days later from what? Six days after what? What happened that it is acknowledging six days later? And so you would want to take a step back to look at six days from what? And what we see is that prior, prior to our scripture, Peter has recently correctly, I might add, identified Jesus as the Christ. And and while Mark doesn't record this, the other Gospels assure us that Peter was mightily blessed by Jesus for knowing the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter acknowledged you are the Christ. Peter got that answer correct, that Jesus is the Christ. But as we start to see it unfold, it uh, that answer is accompanied by confusion. Confusion as to what it means to be the Christ. Confusion as to what Christhood or Messiahship truly means. As Yes, Peter has said, Jesus, you are the Christ. We immediately find that Peter and the others are envisioning their, their post that they will have when Jesus brings about his kingdom. They, they envision that for Jesus to be the Messiah means that he's going to come and he's going to run off the Romans and reestablish the days of David and Solomon to the people of Israel and that Peter will have a seat of honor and glory. But Jesus, as Jesus so often does, flips the script. He points them that, to, that this idea of Christhood is not about the glory and the honor, but he points them to suffering and that they, there will be rejection by the people of Israel and, and even dying. And this, for Peter, does not compute. This does not translate because Peter has this formula in his head that Jesus being the Christ equals glory. If you're a math person, he would say that Jesus plus Christ equals glory. And, and Peter finds himself feeling like he understood. And so he says, let me explain this theological formula that I have, Jesus. And I think a lot of us find ourselves in Peter's situation. We say, yes, God, I will follow you. I will proclaim you as my Lord. I will proclaim you as, my, as Christ. But we don't understand what that means. And we, and we look at it and we go, I want you to be my Savior. But that means that I'm going to go do what I want to do. And when I need you to bail me out, come on. Or, God, I want you to be the Christ. I want you to be 
my my God and my Lord, but we lose sight of the idea of saying you are my Lord means that I am going to serve you and we continue to serve self. And so you see, we see this in Peter as he thinks that he understands. And he says, Jesus, let me explain to you what it means. And Jesus is going, but you're missing the point. Because Jesus, after Peter kind of says, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not how I kind of understood all of this. Goes on and he rebuke, Jesus rebukes him. And, and, he, and he says, no, that's not what it is. And Peter gets upset when Jesus starts talking about this doom and gloom stuff. He says, no, no. And then we hear that famous phrase from Jesus when he looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. And he goes on, Jesus does, to explain the real dynamic of the gospel. This upside down or even counterintuitive world and kingdom of the gospel, a world where living under the sentence of death, giving up yourself, losing your very life are all tickets to the top. Where in our own world, that sounds like things that would put you at the bottom, that would get you stepped on. Jesus says, no, this is the way to life and life eternal. So it's been six days since Jesus says, since all this has happened. And it appears that having time to process all of this has not helped Peter and the others. And so God steps in to get their attention with a little bit of flair, if you will. God brings in the heavy hitters, two heavyweights from Israel's past, seeking to back up everything that Jesus has said. That they will be able to see that Christ is, that Jesus is the Christ. And that's where we pick up in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10, where it says this. It says, Six days later, Jesus took him, took with him Peter and James and John. And they and he led them up a mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And they and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And when Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for he was terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice that said, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And I can imagine if you're Peter and you've been having these debates with Jesus as to what Christship and Messiahship looks like, you're going, Oh, oh, oh okay then. Yeah, okay, God, I'll listen. I'm sorry. And it goes on in verse 8. It says, Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them, Tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So as I said, today is Transfiguration Sunday. And the Transfiguration is that moment that we just read, where, where Jesus is on the mountain and he's, his clothes begin to 
to sparkle as wi- as we hear wider than any bleach could make them. And, and this transfiguration reveals to Peter, James, and John, and to us, Jesus' full divinity. But let us also not lose sight that the fact that Jesus comes down from that mountain and continues to heal, teach, and even go to the cross and die reveals his utter humanity. And I think so often in this text, we a lot is made of the three who were on the mountain, of Jesus and Elijah and Moses being there. But let us not lose sight of the fact that the, uh, that the other three that were up there were Peter, James, and John, and that they were also there for a reason. They were meant to be witnesses to Jesus' glory. And the beauty of this text is that we are invited to that same mountaintop to witness Jesus' glory, to take our place with the disciples, to encounter the glory of God. But I do also think that too often when we talk about the divinity of Christ, we, we point to this one instance. We say this is the instance at this very moment where Christ's divinity is shown. But throughout Scripture, we see the disciples and Jesus doing life together in the valleys and in the plains, far from the mountaintops. Far from when dazzling garments are, are, are nowhere to be seen Even then, though, we see Jesus smiling kindly at a leper and healing them. We see Jesus pained to see a sinner being shunned by the temple establishment. We see Jesus looking endearingly after telling a hurting prostitute to go in peace because her sins were forgiven. Even then, in those moments, we see Christ transfigured. These are those places where we see hints of the glory of God. Where the disciples were seeing true God being the true God. Yet, they were not able to see it in fullness. It's as if they were looking in a light bulb and they were blinded by the light that was happening. And so they couldn't see what was happening all around. And they were seeking this aha moment. They were seeking this, this flare that God threw on it. They, they needed and they wanted more. They said, yeah, we're good with calling you Christ. We believe you are the Christ. But even Peter was saying, but this is how I translate that. And Jesus is going, then you're missing the point. So God provides them with a thin place. Thin place is a phrase that I heard many years ago. And it's one of those places where it feels as though the veil between here and the eternal is so thin that you could put your hand right through it. It may be one of those moments where you literally find yourself on a mountaintop looking out and and you realize, oh, how could I ever see this and not encounter the eternal? How could I ever be present here and not present with God? It may be one of those moments where you find yourself sitting in prayer and you hear a still small voice speaking. Whatever those thin places are, we can almost all remember a moment where we have sat or where we have found ourselves in a moment 
where it feels like the veil between here in the eternal, here in the kingdom is so thin that we could reach right through and walk right through it. This is what God provides for Peter, James, and John. It's in these thin places that we have those moments where the past meets the present and it sends us into the future with hope. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, they form this connection with time. I don't think it's a happenstance that it's those three because what they remind us of is that Jesus is not an isolated incident. But Jesus is a part of the story of redemption. Jesus is a part of the greater story of the gospel. It is a, Jesus is that part where uh, is a part of the love story of God and God's creation. A very key part. In the story of redemption, we encounter a moment where the past meets the present. And it presses us into our future. A moment of hope. That's what the transfiguration really is. is it's that moment of hope. That, that because of, of the past, because of Christ's past, and because of God's past, and the fulfillment of the promises, that we may go forth putting our hope and our trust in Christ. In Jesus, that even Peter going, all right, so I know Jesus, what has happened in the past. And this even happens for us when we look in our past and we go, all right, where was Christ at? Christ was present here. Christ fulfilled Christ's promises to hold and sustain me. And that gives us the hope to move forward in peace and hope and trust in him. And this is what happens with Peter. He says, yes, you are indeed the Christ. I've seen your miracles. I've seen what you've done in your past. I've seen how you've upheld your promises. And now I can move forward in hope. And this hope not only changes our future, but it can change our present as well. The coming of Moses and Elijah signaled the beginning of the end. Peter thought that they were going to stay there and spend the night. And he even says, hey, we should build some booths for y'all to stay in. And he has no way of knowing that they aren't sticking around until Jesus tells him otherwise. And Jesus says, not yet, because I still have to go and suffer and be rejected. And this points us to, while yes, we live in a hope, it do, we also know that we cannot skip over the bad parts. That yes, we may find ourselves even in the bad parts currently. You may be living in those bad parts, in that persecution, in that hurt, in that death, if you will. But even in those, we can encounter the hope. It's in these moments that we need hope. As we look at who Christ has been, as we seek what God is doing, even in our presence, even amidst the, the dark times, even amidst the bad parts, this is where we find hope for our future. As we say, God, open my eyes that I may see you at work this day. And the disciples are called to go forward. What we see in our text is that while Peter offers, he doesn't need to build the tents. He doesn't need to build anything. 
those booths that he offered because the tabernacle containing the glory of God was standing right in front of him all along. And it's calling him not to build a tent, but to build a bridge to bridge the gap, to unify, to bring about God's kingdom in the here and the now and to lead others there as well. Through the transfiguration, we are not called to stay put. We are called to move forward as we have encountered the risen Christ in our own hearts. We are called to move forward, building bridges, ushering in the kingdom, seeking to lead others to encounter the transfigured Christ, bridging the gap between the now and the not yet, bridging this world and God's kingdom as we put our faith in who God has been, this gives us hope for the future. It changes our present as we seek to live out what we pray so frequently that thy kingdom will come and thy will be done. And that we seek that when we call Jesus the Christ, that that means, God, you are in control. Take and use my life to bring about your love, your grace, your mercy, and your hope in this world that so badly needs to see, hear, and feel your presence. Use me as your hands and feet that I may be so filled with your spirit that it flows from every facet of my being and that those that encounter me are no longer encountering me because I have given my life over to you. So therefore, they are encountering the one that is in charge of my life, my Lord and my Christ and my God. This is what the transfiguration is about. It is where we encounter the full divinity of Christ, but in so doing, it changes everything about us and about our future because we go forth seeking to bring in the kingdom of God, seeking to bring about the kingdom of God in the here and the now, seeking to build that kingdom of love, grace, mercy, unity, and hope. Let us go forth as we have encountered the transfigured Christ being transfigured, that others will see the God who dwells within us, and that we may usher in his kingdom this day. Amen and amen.